So it doesn't get any easier than opening your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 for four weeks. We like you guys to read ahead, but this is easy. Just read one chapter and you've read ahead, right? So I shared last week, we're not elevating one chapter of the Bible over the rest of the Bible, right? All the Bible speaks. It's all inspired by God. It's given by inspiration, as I shared last time. And there's something in every portion of Scripture for you and me. It's for our growing. It's for our edification, right? But i got to tell you something. There's something undeniable about this chapter. I don't know what God was thinking when he inspired Paul, but man, he gave us the mother load in one chapter. Now, there were no chapters when Paul wrote it. But the ideas just start flowing. I shared last week, and I read them to you, there's about seven life verses in here. So for those of you who are fishing for one, I think you're going to find one here in Romans chapter 8. And it begins with the great bookends, right? Verse 1, there is no condemnation. And then I think somewhere down around verse 36 or 38, there is no separation. I don't know how anything could be more grand or how you can get any more good news than that. There is no condemnation and there's no separation. This is a no condemnation chapter. And by the way, we should be a no condemnation people. I hope we are. And this should be a no condemnation church. In fact, we should put signs up. No condemnation in this building, right? But here's the catch. To those who are in Christ Jesus, right? So I like to say Calvary Chapel is a safe place for a very dangerous message. We're a safe place, right? We don't have barriers to entry. We are very welcoming, inviting. There's no icons. There's no statues. We want people to come. People don't even know what this place is. They come during the week. They drop things off. They're like, is this a resort? Is, is this like Joseph Anthony? Like, what is this place? And we're like, no, we're a church. And they're like, this is pretty cool. Maybe we'll check it out. We don't want any barriers to entry. But when they come, they're going to hear the good news. You want to hear the good news? You all know it, John 3, 16, that God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him would have eternal life. Not to the person who was good or did everything right, right? God sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would have eternal life and never perish. And then we forget the next verse, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that all the world through him might be saved. And, and I look at the broader culture, and sometimes Christians are more known for what we're against than what we're for. Now, there's good and bad to that, right? So the world needs to know we have a standard. They need to know there's godliness and righteousness. But they think we're anti-gay, they think we're anti-left wing, we're anti-this, we're anti-that. I don't think as the church we're anti-anybody, okay? Uh, we might hold different positions, but there is no barrier to entry. Now, here's the thing. If you're in Christ... If you're not in Christ, there's bad news. You will spend a Christless eternity separated from God. That's a very bad thing. And we want to make sure we get this across. Grace isn't the absence of the truth, right? The Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth. So we want to tell people the truth. The good news is all can come now, right? When Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for the first time, the poor had a seat at the table. And so did those who suffer and those who committed adultery. No longer was it the religious elite who had the seat at the table. Jesus said, I've come for sinners. And he had that badge of honor that he was a glutton and a wine-bibber because he was the friend of sinners. He wasn't afraid of anyone because grace had come to set men free. So the good news of the gospel is here in Romans. And again, this is a powerful chapter. Roman, uh, uh, Martin Luther said that Romans 8 was the purest gospel. He said it was the seed of the Reformation. 
John Wesley said, without this chapter, there's no ministry of John Wesley. I have one commentary by a pastor in Scotland who preached 51 weeks on Romans 8. That's less than a verse a week. Can you imagine? Come back in August, we're still in Romans chapter 8. It's how powerful this book is. There's no condemnation. There's no separation. This is the believer's treasure. This is why we're taking uh, the better part of four weeks to go through it. And so all scripture is given for instruction, for correction. Sometimes we're rebuked. Conviction, right? You know, some of you, as the word of God is taught tonight, or when you read your own Bible, you'll be convicted. That's a good thing. Hopefully when people come to this place, they're convicted. But see, conviction is God elevates you to the place where you understand you need to repent, and then he makes a way for you to go on, like he told the woman, go and sin no more. Okay? So this chapter is not about correction. It's about no condemnation, no separation. We are Christ's. And I think the key verse last week, I'll just quote one, verse two, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of our flesh, sinful flesh, on account of sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, when Jesus said, it is finished, sin came upon him. He was condemned that we might have life. Now, all last week gets us to what we're going to look at today. Very practical lesson. Verse 12. Therefore, because of all that I just said, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to it. In other words, God didn't do all this so we could just go on living in the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's our sanctification. I'm going to get to it in a moment. For as many as are led... By the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. What a verse. As many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who really is a Christian? I went through some of this last week. I won't go through the parable of the soils again. Who really is a Christian? The person who really is a Christian is a person who the Holy Spirit has come and taken up occupancy in your life. We are the sons of God because we're led by the Spirit of God. That is a brand new situation. Let me read you what Jesus said in John 16. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to get you turning a little bit later. He said, but now I go to way, and you ask me where I'm going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, this is the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but now you cannot bear them. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you in all truth. That's the Christian life. He will guide you in all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you, and all things that the Father has are mine, and therefore I said that he will take of mine and then declare it to you. Now, 
everyone in this room, if you're a believer, had a profound experience with the Holy Spirit. Because regeneration, to be born again, means the Holy Spirit came out and took residence, and you were born again. Now, when I became a believer, I had an interaction of the Holy Spirit that's not unique. In fact, it's quite normal, but I'm going to open up a little bit of a Pandora's box here, but maybe it's good for us. So a gentleman who was witnessing to me for about a week, uh, I said the sinner's prayer on a Saturday night. The next day I was in church, and they gave an altar call, and everybody was coming forward, so I came forward. I had tears coming down my cheeks, and I said the sinner's prayer again, okay? Counselor came over to me and said, would you like to receive the Holy Spirit? I would have received anything they were offering. I mean, I was amazed at what was going on. God was all over me. So he took me into a corner, and he began to show me through the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit coming, and how people spoke in other tongues. He never laid hands on me. I never heard anything. Uh, there was no suggestion of anything. And I felt a rumbling in my spirit, and I began to speak in other tongues. Now, Everyone in our circle who was getting saved had the same experience, and many of you did too. This was the time, the late end of the Jesus movement, kind of people would say this was the charismatic movement, right? It was an era, although I don't think God really works by ears, but what the heck, that's what was going on, right? But what was interesting about this is when you get saved, there is a radical transformation. That radical transformation is happening inwardly. Now, not everybody feels maybe what I felt, but there is a transaction. But what was really cool for me was that I saw something in Scripture that happened to them, the book of Acts, and it was now happening to me. It's what Paul said, we have the down payment of the Spirit of God. And by the way, I think that was normative and still is. I believe there is a prayer language for every believer and I think it's for you, and I think if you seek it, God will bestow that upon you. Now, somebody's thinking, oh, 1 Corinthians says, do all speak in tongues, do all prophesy, and the answer is no. Yeah, but I think he's talking about a corporate gift. Because Paul said, I pray in tongues more than you all. And he talked about how we can pray in the Spirit and pray with our understanding, and there is a prayer language of angels so I don't want to trip anybody up, and I don't want you to think there's a second blessing or classes of citizens, but that profound experience with the Holy Spirit opened me up to the fact that I was a son of God. Now, he takes it one step further. This is really cool. Back in Romans 8, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, so in other words, we're not back in a legalistic system where we can't keep all the rules. There's something better than that. You receive the spirit of adoption by which we now cry Abba, and many of you know that's Arabic for daddy. It means our father. So this is profound. Paul takes it another level, and he begins here to talk about adoption. Now, this isn't a trick question, and I don't want you to give me some allegorical answer. Does anybody know who the first person in the Bible to be adopted was? Anybody know? You're going to be surprised, shocked. Shem probably knows. <laughs> Exodus chapter 2 was Moses, right? There's an edict by Pharaoh that all the little boys, Hebrew boys, two years old or less, are going to be killed. And so uh, Moses' mother gets Miriam to 
you know, she makes this wicker basket and she sends him out in the reeds and Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And she calls him Moses, which, by the way, is not a Hebrew name. It's Egyptian. It means to be drawn out of the water. And he's adopted into Pharaoh's house. What does that bring with it? All the rights and privileges of his new adoptive family. He becomes the prince of Egypt. We read in Stephen writes in Acts chapter 7, he was raised in all the wisdom and power of the Egyptians. And God was behind this, right? God wanted Moses to see what large organizations look like and how to move large people groups. I've always said, and, and I don't know if this is why adoption is big here, but from day one, we believed adoption was the greatest way to change a person's life. One day they're over here, maybe in a bad situation, the next day they're in your home with all the rights and privileges. Esther was adopted in the Mordecai's family. I don't know how many of you know that. But to me, the greatest adoption story, and the one that I think will paint the picture for your, the rest of your life, and I do want you to turn, is 2 Samuel chapter 9. Don't be embarrassed if you're turning too much. Nobody's going to think less of you. You can always go to the table of contents to find it. 2 Samuel chapter 9 is one of my favorite stories. Now David said in verse 1, Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David had run from Saul his entire young adult life. He was the rightful king, but Saul was chasing him down, throwing javelins at him. He, he's hiding in caves. And you know the story. Finally, Saul is dead. David's the rightful king. This is 15 years later. 15 years later, David said, is there anyone I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, that word kindness is the word said in the Hebrew. In fact, Michael Carr just came out with a book. It took him 10 years to write it. It's his lifelong uh, opus to the church to write about said. Hesed is the Hebrew word that means the loving kindness, gratitude. Uh, it's a very descriptive word of God, which is strange. Because the new atheists have painted this argument today where the God of the Old Testament is a bully and the God of the Old Testament is a God of war and that we can't trust the God of the Old Testament. We have to look to Jesus. Maybe you've heard some of this. And yet David, who's the man after God's own heart, and here's why he is, says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show God's kindness to? Has said. Uh, Daniel Rosenblum has been my Jewish guide in Israel for 20 years. And when I got Michael Card's book, I texted him. And I said, Daniel, don't overthink this. I know you're a secular Jew. Give me the Hebrew equivalent when you hear the word has said. And you know what, he, know what he wrote back in the text? Grace. Grace. This is grace in the Old Testament. And David says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness and there was a servant, verse 2, of the house of Saul, whose name was Ziba. And when they called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. And then the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul to, to whom I must show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lamed at his feet. He's deformed. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is in the house of Masher, the son of Amiel, in Lodabar. 
Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Masher, the son of Amiel, from Lodabar. Now, now here's his name. Now when Mephibosheth, aren't you glad you're not me tonight? Imagine saying that ten times, Mephibosheth. Imagine teaching your kid his own name or how to write his name. It's unbelievable. Now, when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face, prostrated himself, and David said, Mephibosheth. I wonder what it was like when he heard that from the king of Israel. And he answered, and he said to him, here is your servant. And David said to him in verse 7, do not fear, I will show kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Now, I think most of you know, when one nation would conquer another nation, or one king would take over for another king, the first thing you did was kill and slaughter all their offspring, right? That's the beauty of America. The world watches us because we have this peaceful transition. It didn't work that way in the ancient world. So Mephibosheth can't understand what is going on here that the king would invite him to his table. And he bowed himself in verse 8 and he said, What is your servant that you should look upon me as a dead dog? That's how Mephibosheth saw himself in the eyes of the king. And by the way, this isn't like dogs in our culture. We have doggy parks and dog insurance and dogs are elevated above people. Right, if you've ever been to the Middle East, they're scraggy and nobody brings them in the house. They're, you know, grangy and they're, they're, they're ugly. And he goes, I'm just a dead dog. Why are you even speaking to me? And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given you your master's son, all that belonged to Saul, to all his house. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. This keeps getting repeated. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. And he said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servant, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Now, I want to show you the picture here, because it is a picture of adoption, and it's beautiful. Mephibosheth means breathless one or shameful breath. So not only is this person deformed, but can you, can you see the character here? Like, maybe like Shrek-like looking, you know, not, not a person to be desired. And he comes from Lodabar. Sounds like a development, right? But Lodabar means a barren land. He probably fled to the wilderness because he thought David would hunt him down. He's probably been there for 15 years. And what we're looking at, really, in, in, in all likelihood, is an insignificant person that no one would look upon. A nobody from a no place. And the king comes along and says, you're going to sit at my table. And I think this is a wonderful picture of our adoption. And, and there's four things I draw out of it. And I think in our relationship with God, I want you to think this through. Number one, David was the initiator. This is so important. 
See, in Mephibosheth's eyes, it was over. He was a dead dog. He was down and out. He would never find in the king's favor. He was on the wrong side of the tracks. He was of the lineage of Saul. And I think the beautiful thing there is, and we need to understand this, and for those of you who are witnessing the people and you have prodigals, God is always the initiator of a relationship with himself. I don't want to let you down, but none of you found God, right? Last time I checked, he isn't a missing person. While we were dead in trespasses and sins, he found us. God is always the initiator of a relationship with man. Man's always trying to work himself up to God. Man's making clothes for himself. Man's sacrificing. God comes along and he slays an animal. And the first thing I see in this story is this beautiful illustration that David's the initiator. And then it says that he's going to show Meshibbeth kindness for Jonathan's sake. That's really cool. In other words, it's not out of his own kindness. It's the kindness for Jonathan's sake. And the kindness that's bestowed on you and me was for Christ's sake. God sent his only begotten son because of the value he had placed on us. So much so that he became sin. The one who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. And probably the most beautiful thing, and we talked about this last week, is that Mephibosheth was chosen, right? We talked about this last week. There's this battle. Are we free? Are we chosen? I think I share with you it's both, right? It really is. And, and man can't figure out how to connect that. He tries. Like I shared last week, we live in two different camps. We live in a reform camp or an Arminian camp. Um, there was a scientist one time who was talking about how two things could be true. I never forgot this. And I think it applies here. So how can it be true that we have free will, and how can it be true that we were chosen? It looks something like this, and I think we'll put it on the screen. Uh, the scientist said in his illustration, I'm not, I'll do a worse job than he did, he said a triangle can never be a circle, right? Take out a piece of paper, you can never make a triangle a circle. However, if you put the triangle on its tip and go and look at it from another vantage point and look down, you now have a circle. Two things can be true, but you have to go to another dimension. See, in our dimension, we can't figure those things out. We can't make them meet. We live in a tension. God looks down, it makes perfect sense. One person shared it with me this way. When we get to heaven, there's going to be a sign over the door that says, whosoever will may enter. And then when you go through the other side and look back, there'll be another sign that says, chosen from the foundation of the world. I love the fact that I'm chosen. I love the fact that I could sit back and say, I mean, think about all the times in life we're left out. I was a baseball football player. When the Sixers got Julius Irving, I switched to basketball late. And I went out for the freshman team and I got cut. And I went out for the so sophomore year and I got cut again. And you know how they cut you back then? You know, no orange slices, no trophies back then. You know how they cut you back then? 100 kids went out for basketball. And two days later, they put 12 names on an index card on the gym wall. Freshman year, no name. Sophomore year, no name. You know what it was like your junior year to see your name there? That you were chosen and that coach wanted you? I think if we reflected on that, how much more joy would come to our lives? 
I know there's days where things are swirling where I just look down and say, God, how did you do all this? I had that experience on the Sea of Galilee the first time I was there. I'm sitting there, I'm saying, God, how did you get a landscaper's kid from Philadelphia to the Sea of Galilee? How did you do this? And you sit back and you just realize, we are chosen. And then, finally, we become heirs. And by the way, sitting at David's table, <laughs> go back and read what, his, what Solomon's table looked like. I mean, this was an all-day buffet. This was the best there was. And so we look at this story of adoption, and I, I, I think Paul's drawing drawing some parallels here, so that we can understand this was a legal act, right? Reconciliation was an economic term. This is what Christ did for us. Now, we want to go one more step. Just hang with me. Paul was a Roman citizen, and I know in the back of his mind he's writing this on purpose under the inspiration of God because adoption in Rome wasn't like adoption today. So we adopt babies, right, and sometimes older children, uh, sometimes people can't have children or whatever, and we adopt, and it's a wonderful thing. Way different in that culture. By the way, children were not valued. Children were a burden. The family wasn't like it is today. What adoption looked like in that day is that if a wealthy Roman had a major estate, and if his own sons, if he had no sons, or if his own sons were kind of like playboys or party animals, and he didn't think they were worthy, he would go out looking for an heir. It was very difficult. He had to go out and look for this heir, and this, this person had to, you know, be an upstanding citizen and able to run his estate, etc., etc. And then he would enter into legal adoption, and this person would become his son. And I think a lot of what Paul's writing here is to people who understand this Roman background. When you adopted someone in the Roman situation, the first thing happened is all ties to the previous life were cut. Isn't that neat? The Bible says that, that we live this brand new life in Christ, that old things have passed away. All things have become new. Uh, the second thing that would happen is this heir would be given full jurisdiction and legally a brand new name. Isn't that what scripture says about us? Revelation. To him who overcomes, God's going to give us a new name, a new heart. He's going to breathe new life into us. So all this verse speaks about is rich and rewarding. That we are not only the children of God, but the sons of God. And then we go one more step, we cry, Abba, Father. The most groundbreaking thing, I think, most revolutionary thing Jesus ever said was, pray this way, our Father who art in heaven. No Jew ever prayed that way in the Old Testament, ever. That we can approach the throne of God, not with fear and trembling, although God is holy, but as though we are in relationship to him with no fear. Kyle Eidelman was a young pastor at Louisville Christian Fellowship. I got to see his, his pastor, who's now retired, Bob Russell, in a room like this. It was one of the great moments of my life, learning from a guy who grew a church from 180 to 20,000 for three days in a room like this was pretty special. And he shared how Kyle Eidelman, and we sell Kyle's books in the bookstore, Kyle Eidelman was in his 20s. And uh, he gets to Louisville Christian Center, and he comes into Bob Russell one day, and he goes, I can't do it anymore. He said, what are you talking about? He said, I know you have this rule, we have to wear suits and ties on Sunday, I can't do it anymore. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, we wear suits and ties because we serve the king, and we dress up for God. 
Kaidal Eidelman says, yeah, but it doesn't fit me. It doesn't fit my generation. It's not my style. It's choking me. And, and I don't think I can wear this suit. And Bob Russell said, look, if you were going to the White House to meet the President of the United States, wouldn't you wear a suit? And Kyle Eidelman said, yeah, I would, unless he was my dad. And I thought, wow, what an answer. What an answer. And sometimes I don't think we look at God that way. I think we still have that, that idea of God as that elderly father with a long beard. And it says here, we cry, Abba, Father. Now, all of this goes back to verse 13. If we live according to the flesh, we will die. But if we live according to the Spirit, we'll live. This is very important. Because what we're answering is, how do we live the Christian life? Sometimes people say, well, the Christian life's really hard. It's really not that hard. And I, you've heard me say this before, but I'm going to keep saying it because nobody really gets it. Christianity is not about trying, it's about training. See, those who are led by the Spirit were the sons of God. Being led by the Spirit isn't, you know, God led me this way or that way. That's true, right? God is leading us and there are whispers from God. It's certainly not what some people do, and that's follow the Holy Spirit wherever they think he's going. This meeting, that rally, this activity. The Spirit is guiding us into truth, and for the first time, we're being trained in righteousness. Here's what that means. Legalism is where we're told what to do, and then we do it under our own power. Being led by the Spirit kind of looks like this. Uh, somebody on our staff said their goal this year is to run a half marathon. How many people in here, can't even turn your cell phone off, how are you going to run a half marathon? How many people in here can run a half marathon? A few of you. Why? Because you already trained. For the rest of us who couldn't, if we trained, we could. See, for the first time ever, the Holy Spirit has come alongside to train us in the things of God. I am so thankful for the person who led me to Christ. Because they didn't come by every, you know, I was in college. They didn't come by every day spying on me. They didn't tell me what I should be doing or not be doing. In fact, I was doing some things, and they never really said anything. But they would slowly lead me along. And there were things in my life I didn't know any different, but God, through his word and through life, was beginning to show me things. So I lived about 40 minutes from my church. And I would get in my car, and I would put on WMMR, and I'd listen to heavy metal rock music all the way to church, fellowship and hear the word and listen to that all the way home. Never thought about it. And about nine months into my salvation, I had tickets to a Van Halen concert that I bought a long time ago. And I went to that Van Halen concert, and I began to see things like scales fell to my eyes. I began to see activity I used to be involved in. And the last song was Running with the Devil. Some of you, that's all you'll think about for the rest of the service. <laughs> and 18,000 people were going like this, running with the, and of course they don't know what they're doing. And that's when God said, that's it. And I went home that night and threw out 500 albums of music. Go to the church the next day, there's a church picnic. I'm in line, the people in front of me are talking about how they're so excited they just bought tickets to the Who concert that was coming to Philadelphia. And I wanted to go back and dumpster dive and get all my records. But I realized God had delivered that, me from that. Because I was led by the Spirit of God. 
the Holy Spirit shed light on something that no longer was profitable in my life. Now, I'm not somebody who can go around and say, you can't do it, you can't do it. That was my life, and it's been that way for 35 years. Why? Because I'm led by the Spirit of God. I am the Son of God. It is the assurance of my salvation. And God systematically has been training me. That's why Paul says, put off and put on, right? Don't make provision for the flesh. Put on. This is why we're here tonight, here, instead of somewhere else. You know, before Christ, where would you have been on a Wednesday night? See, see, we've changed patterns. And, and not through legalism, through the empowerment of the Spirit who's telling us this is right for you and this might be wrong for you. And so now we are the sons of God. We cry out, Abba, Father. And verse 16 says, The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are his children. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed... Uh-oh, we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. This is where the Bible is amazing, because the Bible's not saying, look, you know, everything's perfect. In fact, he's going to go on in verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. What in the world does that mean? Uh, Paul said, the suffering in this world, and there's a lot of it, and I hear a lot of it, cannot be compared for what God has for us. A lot of people are afraid to die. A lot of Christians are afraid to die. Because um, they don't know what it's going to be like or what it's going to look like. And I always say, well, this turned out pretty good, so uh, God's got something pretty good next time, I'm pretty sure. Right? What he has... And Paul saw the third heaven, by the way. Paul saw, as great as this life could ever be in Christ, Paul saw what one day is going to be revealed to us. And God gave me like a, a silly little illustration one day. I think it was just for me, but because I'm a preacher, I have to share it. When you think of the suffering of this age, think of, of just the worst thing you've ever been through, or the worst thing you've ever read. Turn on the news every day, like that girl just got abducted. And, I mean, it's crazy out there, right? Paul said there's no comparison to what's going to happen, what's going to be revealed. It's almost like God said, do you remember February 25th when you were in first, uh, fourth grade? No. I think that's what heaven's going to be like. I think that's what the new world's going to be like. I don't think God's going to give us a lobotomy or wipe out our brain. I just think those things won't even be in comparison anymore. That day may have been a bad day for you, but you don't remember it anymore. And it says here what God has planned, and it's going to be grand. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. So I don't know if you know this, even the world around us is going to change. It changed in the fall. Uh, before the fall, I think the world looked far different. I don't think the animals ate one another. And people say, well, then why does a lion have teeth? Well, uh, we read in Isaiah that the, 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 the wolf's going to lay down with the lamb, and uh, last time I checked, the wolf has teeth, and 
Maybe God wanted to show strength and weakness. I don't know, but everything's going to change back to the way it was. Now, as Christians, this irks me. Sometimes we look at that and say, there's a new world coming. This is all going to burn. So why don't we just trash this place, right? And sometimes we're on the wrong side of the argument in society about cleaning up the earth, right? We think that's like a left-wing liberal thing. Um, the hundred Psalms said this is our father's earth. And we should be leaders in saying, yeah, you know what? This planet, God gave it to us. Yeah, I know it's all going to burn and be recreated. But even the creation is groaning for the manifestation of what's coming. Verse 23 says, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our body, especially those who are getting older. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. I shared last time that uh, I speak in tongues, still to this day. And people say, well, when do you do that? I say, uh, like when I'm driving here on Sunday morning, when I don't know what to pray, when I'm in a pinch, I just pray in the Spirit because, God, I don't have any words. Now, it says here, groanings that cannot be uttered. So I don't know if that's praying in tongues because it says it can't be uttered or what we're uttering do we not know. I don't know. There's, the linguistics here are challenging. But you know it and I know it that there is a groaning because here's the one thing we know. There's something wrong with this world right? I mean, there really is. I mean, there's something drastically wrong with our world. No matter how good you may have it or we have it as Americans, look around the world. Uh, look at the defense budgets of the world. It's staggering. Trillions and trillions of dollars. There are enough nuclear warheads that if they were all shot off at the same time, we would change the axis of the planet. It's how much we fear one another and we're against one another. And then you look at the indiscrepancies. Uh, I think we have this uh, for you on the screen. I stumbled upon this book um, that presented what our world would look like if we cut the world up into 100 people, right? So if we took the whole world and drilled it down to 100 people, what would it look like? Literacy. I think this is the first slide. In 100 people, 83 would be able to read 17 wouldn't be able to read. It's unthinkable as Americans, right, that 17 people couldn't read. 77 would have shelter from the outdoor elements. Uh, 23 would not. In a room of 100 people, there would be one person dying of starvation, 15 undernourished, and then 21 would be overweight. It's amazing. 87 would have access to clean drinking water, 13 wouldn't. Can you imagine 13 people in this room would go home, no access to clean drinking water? One in two children would be living in poverty. Can you imagine in our church if 
one out of two of all your kids lived in poverty or less than $2 a day. 48 people, uh, maybe half of the people here tonight living on less than $2. There's something wrong. Something wrong with our world. And, and if we're all just beings who are here, if we're all materialists and naturalists, why is this? Why is there greed? Why is there corruption? And we all know the answer. Because this world is moving on in futility. Now, the beautiful thing is we don't throw the towel in, right? Jesus was a realist. He said, in this world, you'll have what? Trouble. He said, in this world, who will always be with you? The poor. Now, I think we should try and eradicate poverty. But he said, the poor would always be with us. Jesus was a realist. He was also an optimist. He said, but I've overcome the world. And the beautiful thing is the children of God and the sons of God is we've been empowered by the Spirit. God has given us creative ideas, and he's given us influence, and he's given us the power, and it started in the book of Acts, that we can make something grand while we're here. Hopefully we bring a boatload of people to heaven. But while we're here, we can make things right. And I think, again, the church teeters on one side or the other. We either go one way and say, okay, it's just all about salvation and forget people eating and drinking. And I don't think that's true because I look back 2,000 years and the greatest inroads and the greatest gains were made by people that the Spirit of God spoke to them and they brought change to the world. And we're a byproduct of that. You and I who live here in America, I believe the seeds of the gospel brought us to the place where we experience this incredible abundance. And so, though we are the children of God, we are not exempt from suffering. We are not exempt from the trials of this world. Verse 27 says, Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God, and then it moves us into the verse we'll be in next week. Personally, my favorite verse. And we know, you all know this, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be formed in the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. It doesn't say everything's going to work out good. It doesn't say you're going to get everything you want. Mephibosheth went to David's table, and his legs were never healed. He was carried to and fro every day, though he sat at the table. Jesus walked in John 5 into the pool of Siloam, asked the man, do you want to be made well? And he said, I do. And that lame man walked, but Jesus walked out and left everybody in the condition they were in. Doesn't say we get what we want. Doesn't say everything's going to be good. That's not the gospel. It says God is working all things for good. God's working all things for good. And one day we're going to look back and God will connect all the dots and maybe it's going to be in heaven. Maybe it'll be here. I'll say, oh my gosh, God, I saw what you were doing. I get it now. Mephibosheth, 15 years. 15 years. I'm a dead dog. God forgot about me. By the way, he was dropped by his nanny. Right? So now he's got another, he's a victim of what somebody else did. 
15 years goes by and God works it for good. So the book of Romans is telling us, look, there's no condemnation. We're in Christ. That's a beautiful thing. And we're led by the Spirit of God. And we're being led to a place. There's this sanctification, this growing process. We're being conformed to the image of Christ. We're getting closer and closer. God has something for us to live out. We are the sons of God and the children of God. We are not exempt from suffering. And there is a God who's elbow deep in the affairs of our life. He really is. And I sit around like you do, and I wonder if God cares or he knows, and he does. And he's right there in the midst of it. He's ever making intercession. And he's working it all for good to those who are called by his name and his purpose.